We started culturally speaking to indulge our curiosity about the way others live and a desire to inspire conversations about how we have far more in common than we realise. So today we have a very interesting interview, I would say. You know, when we first um, came across Christopher, I think we thought we were going to talk to the people who were in the story. Well, at least I thought so. And then we ended up talking to Christopher, who directed the documentary. And I thought it was a really interesting perspective. Yeah, no, I remember that. I think I initially engaged with... um, starting to put this episode together and then you asked oh like so are we going to speak to the women I was like well no we're going to speak to Christopher who directed this documentary about the women and their Mm -hmm. story um and I we also watched it um he Mm -hmm. he very kindly must have have a a preview of this uh, documentary before it premiered and I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be when it started if I'm being honest I wasn't sure how the story was going to be told but I really really respected the way that he let their story be told by them Mm -hmm. and he took real like care I felt to make sure that and you, you, he said it, right, in the way that the editing process, he didn't get it approved unless they were happy with it, mm. which is quite unusual. You know, when, you know, because obviously you did the initial engagement with Christopher and when you told me the topic of his documentary, what it made me think of is all the recent and historic Me Too movement things, right, of essentially women who were being abuse right for the the lack of a better word and I am glad that a lot of that is coming to light you know we've had famous cases like you know Ghislaine Maxwell in prison and Epstein and all of those things and Harvey what's his name Weinstein Mm. but as you know and people who know me well know that I'm really into true crime you know one pattern though is that And, you know, this is what makes Christopher's documentary even more valuable, in my opinion, is this thing called the missing white woman syndrome. Now, I'm not kind of, you know, undermining any missing woman at all of any race, but I think because of how society works, you do see a lot of high profile um, cases, but that is not very representative of all the cases in my opinion, right? You have, you know, we talked about this, Emily Ratajkowski's new book about what happened when she made the music video. Um, I don't even remember the name now of the song, but... Blurred Lines. Yeah, that. (laughs) Um, You know, and it's great, you know, people should come out and speak their truths and if there were wrongdoings, you know, People should be prosecuted, etc., etc. It's all great, but before talking to Christopher about, you know, the plight of these Ethiopian women, I would say that I would admit that I didn't really give it a thought because it wasn't in my 
in my reality. Yeah. yeah. And all I knew about Ethiopia was probably like the food I can get at the market. Latin. Yeah. And Haiti Selassie, right? As he's a out from it yeah. to me as a historian. Yes. Yeah. Going back to your white missing woman syndrome, I think we've seen the rise of people questioning that here. I think particularly in the UK, we've had some high profile cases this year. Sarah Everard, you know, the huge numbers of women that came out um, to protest that. But, you know, months later, we had a woman of colour that went missing. And the news cycle on that felt very, very short um, in comparison. And it's not a comparison because, you know, there are different people, different cases, but women of every colour, nationality, race, ethnicity go missing every single day, right? That is a fact. But only certain stories really become part of our consciousness in the media. And I think the other example of that is Nigeria, right? Boko Haram, Mm. bring back our girls. I mean, that became very, very prevalent because it took the likes of someone like Michelle Obama to bring it to our consciousness. Mm. But there are girls like that across that continent and across others, ultimately. I mean, Afghanistan's a great example. Would we have been talking about that without Malala? Mm-hmm. Um, but we need more than just these small pockets. That's a, that's a good point, though, right? Because there is so much about the world that we don't know, and it's impossible to know everything. So I'll be curious to know like what is the solution you know in in quotes of do you know what I mean because however naturally curious we are like you and I are you know we would go seek out information like this and if we weren't doing this podcast we wouldn't have come across Christopher and found out about this story but then we are limited essentially by you know, this is a bigger conversation around what's being funded. And Christopher mentions in his story the challenges in that when you cover something which might not be, you know, the hot potato of the moment. Completely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I personally like to have a really diverse curation of friends, contacts and sources that I get my information from Mm -hmm. to try and readdress and rebalance some of the things I know I can very easily access in mainstream media I mean I have that's another topic right mainstream media because I honestly I'll admit I've completely lost faith in mainstream media I think for one fact doesn't seem to be the currency anymore Right, a lot of things. It doesn't matter which side of whatever camp you're on. Actually, it's it's got to the point where nothing seems to be based on facts anymore. It's a lot of politicized and almost personal agenda on each and every single article. And I would challenge that because in the old old days, you know, without the internet, without anything, back to what are those people called? Like people who shout out the news, like in the town. 
Do you know oh, what I like mean? the people who uh, like. Oh, there's I, a I'm term for them. Like there's someone who will basically shout out the latest things, like in the town square. You know, that's before we had print and newspaper and things like that. So, what I'm trying to is it a town crier. Yes, that's yeah. It. Like so, when there's new bills and laws, mm, they will. Yeah. So we progressed obviously to more accessible information and we used to hold things like newspapers as the source of information source of facts source of stories of what happened because we couldn't be there right all the time to see it and now it's exploded into this whole industry where headlines are clickbaits and i kind of feel like but our willingness and ability to distinguish fact from fiction hasn't developed along with it. It hasn't developed at the same pace. You know, our critical thinking, you know, and there's a big thing mm. around, we used to put trust in newspapers in, in the broadsheets, yeah. right? In this country in particular, the British media in particular. And that has been eroded over time so yeah back to my point of there are people that are telling stories right every day of Mm. unsung untold heroes as christopher puts it right he thinks these women are the true american heroes Mm -hmm. um and it's really i guess our own responsibility to look and to find because I don't think there is a, like you say, there is not one overarching solution that will bring these stories to light. I mean, without further ado then, shall we listen to Christopher tell a story? My name is Christopher Chambers. I'm an independent filmmaker based in Los Angeles, California. And I recently completed my second feature film, which is a human rights documentary called A Fire Within. I think this story begins with that article. We all have had that article. It's that article we've clipped from a magazine or newspaper and set aside, or we put the link on our desktop or the PDF somewhere in a folder thinking, oh, I'm definitely going to read that when I have more time. We all have that article. For me, that article changed my life. I was touring with my previous film, Aram Aram, and I was on a flight back from Sydney, Australia in 2016. I had plenty of free time and I began to look through those articles and I landed on that article, which I had clipped and saved and put on my desktop. I opened it up and it was a story about a human rights violator discovered living in America and this unbelievable coincidence of these three women who were survivors of torture under this man, who are uh, originally from Ethiopia, who had fled their home country and taken a long journey. And one of the women landed in Atlanta, Georgia, started a waitressing job. And when she started that job, she met one of her coworkers. And when he said hello, she recognized his voice. And it was the voice of the man who was her interrogator and torturer a dozen years earlier back in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. So my jaw dropped and I started reading more and more. And then when I 
landed for my layover. I started reading more and more and the story became more and more incredible. And I became more and more incredulous about wondering why had I never heard of this story? This is an incredible, thrilling, historic, as it turns out, and inspiring story. And that article ended up changing the course of my life for the next four years, eventually becoming the film I recently completed, A Fire Within. Well, initially when I read this article, I didn't jump up and say, aha, I shall make a film about this. I, I thought, oh, this has nothing to do with my culture, my background, my, I'm not even, I'm neither of the culture nor the generation of the subjects of this film. And I thought, well, this is probably not a story for me to tell. This is a story for someone else to tell. That was 2016. And yet I couldn't shake the story or it wouldn't shake me. I don't know. Depends how you, how you view um, your passage in life. And, um, and before that, I really didn't know much about Ethiopia at all. I had heard Ethiopic music, which is the oldies, 60s and 70s music. I had heard that probably on like, the radio here on, on our uh, world music uh, radio stations, uh, radio shows. So before that, I'd only heard Ethiopic music, like the classics on the radio. I thought it was really cool. I had had uh, Dorowat. I had had Ethiopian food here in Little Ethiopia. But honestly, I'd never met an Ethiopian person in terms of having a, you know, a personal interaction. Uh, I knew nothing about the history. I had heard of Haile Selassie, mostly in the context of Rastafarianism, <laughs> so I, which really doesn't tell you anything about the history of Ethiopia. Uh, and I so... Not only did I know almost nothing about East Africa, I know nothing about Ethiopia, and I really had no personal connection to Ethiopian culture. And so when I first read this article, I thought it was incredible and there should be a film made about it. But I honestly thought it wasn't going to be me who could do that. But time went by and I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And then one day I thought, well, what if I try? And that became that began a very long process of trying to reach the women, who are the three women who are uh, the subjects of this this documentary. Uh, and initially, I reached out to them, or attempted to, and uh, none of them would return my emails or my calls. Uh, and when you think about it, or when I thought about it, uh, it makes sense, right? You're calling somebody in the middle of their workday, and they're saying, "Hi, I'm a complete stranger with a last name that 100% is not from your culture." And I'd love to bring up the worst thing, the most traumatic thing that ever happened to you in your life. Uh, give me a call. Thanks. You know, and so, you know, it made sense. So that was its complete dead end. And then I thought, well, what if I try to reach one of the lawyers involved? And it turns out there's some rather well-established uh, lawyers that were involved in the case or now are rather well-established. And so that they were easy to track down. And that led me to Miles Alexander, who's a very uh, esteemed lawyer in Atlanta who had a huge career in trademark law and also did human rights cases pro bono on the side. Sort of a legendary character. And he said, um, yeah, I'm not going to talk to you on the phone, but if you fly out to Atlanta, meet me face to face, I'll be happy to speak with you and then see, see if I think uh, I should recommend that the women speak with you. And that began the journey of making a fire within. I went to Atlanta, 
we have lunch and he's sort of this very charming guy. So at the end of it, I had no idea if he liked me or trusted me or not because he's just sort of had this Southern charm that, that I didn't, I could coming from Los Angeles. I couldn't tell if he thought I was a, you know, dirt bag or if he thought I was earnest in my intentions. And then I got my answer when one evening I got a call from the first of the three women from Hirut. And that was a three hour conversation where we didn't even talk about the film. We didn't talk about my ideas for the film. We talked about everything but the film. We talked about current events, films, books, and that was it. And then a little while later, I received a call from Elizabeth, second woman, same thing, three and a half hour, very long conversation covering every sort of topic, but not really talking about the film. And then much later, Edgy Guy, who Edge, who was the woman who first, who, the one, who, the woman who moved to Atlanta and who first discovered that her torturer was living in America. Same thing. She then spoke with me, long conversation, and, and I realized very intelligently they weren't asking me who I was and what I was about and what my intentions were. They were asking me questions about everything else so they could decide who they thought I was. And that began a very emotionally intense relationship with them eventually um, agreeing to meet with me in person and discussing the pros and cons of making this film for them, for their lives, putting their story in someone else's hands. And it began a very uh, long and very emotionally intense journey toward making this film. Well, there, there were a lot of potential uh, trap doors and pitfalls in, in making this film. It, I thought it would take two years, but um, financing it was so difficult that we repeatedly ran out of money and had to stop until I could raise a little bit more money to then shoot the next sequence or go to the next city or country to film. We filmed in 10 cities across America including Los Angeles, Atlanta, Washington, D.C. We filmed in, in Canada, and, and I spent a month in Addis Ababa. And all those challenges are familiar to probably any independent filmmaker, where you'll have meetings with people in institutions, grant-making organizations that should, you think they should be interested in supporting this film, and yet they decline to uh, invest in the film or to issue a grant to your project. And that's just the way it is for an independent filmmaker. Uh, there's no shortage of people with great ideas. So uh, that's what you sign up for when you try to make an independent film. And in my case, the, the bigger challenge, the more daunting challenge, was the responsibility of portraying the true life experience of three women, again, not from my culture, not from my generation, who also experienced true profound trauma, the trauma that I myself have never experienced. And so I made a very unusual decision at the very inception of this project, which is that I made a promise to the three women. And I said that I cannot tell the story without you. I can't just show up and interview you and then go away, find archivals, material, uh, shoot recreations, cut it together, and then it's going to there's no way I'm, I'm not going to miss the mark, no matter how much research I try to do. And I'm asking for 
the most supreme amount of vulnerability from them. They have to tell, to do this project, they have to tell me about the very, very most horrific moments of their lives, the most heartbreaking moments of their lives. So I made a promise. I said, if you put your trust in me and you share your story with me and you move forward with me to, to allow me to make this documentary about your life, then I promise that the film will not be finished without you seeing it first. When I'm toward the end of editing, I'll bring you the edit before it's locked, not when it's too late. And I will listen to your feedback. I will take your notes. And if you feel that I have not done justice to your story or that I've screwed up your story in any way, I will listen and I will go back to work and I will fix my mistakes. And this is something that's sort of lunacy. Like no filmmaker could do this, should do this really normally because if your subject then decides that they're never happy with your representation of their story, which could be just as likely as unlikely, then you'll never finish the film. Uh, but I felt like this was the right way to make this story. And the women also felt that this uh, felt right to them. And um, that was the basis upon which we moved forward. And it was absolutely critical because even though it added, honestly, six, eight, probably eight weeks more to editing, and it was extremely um, emotionally difficult to go to their homes and show them the film sitting side by side. In the case of two of the women sitting next to them on a couch and watching this film with them, watching the cut with them, watching their story be told, watching the worst moments of their life be presented. And also distilled, right? This has to be in a documentary. It's an hour and a half long. We have to cut out so much. And then when I did that the first time around, hearing from each of them, well, here's what you got wrong. So you, you know, Christopher, you connected this and this, you know, subtextually. And she's like, that's not the way it really was. That's not what it was like for us. You know, I, we can see why you thought that, but that's not, that's not what it was like for us. So I would then sort of have the wind knocked out of me. And I went back to my editor, Jimmy Gilbane. I said, okay, good news and bad news. <laughs> good news is there this, this, and this they thought was great. And this problem has to be fixed, and I don't know how yet. And then, like with everything with making a film, you just say, well, let's try. Let's get back to work. Let's try this. Let's try that. And the real challenge, I think, always with independent, with any filmmaking, and the real challenge, I think, with any filmmaking is when you have a setback or a challenge to try to say, how can I make this into an advantage? How can I use this as an opportunity to make the film better in a way I had never anticipated. And that was my challenge, was to make sure I served the women's story because we're really telling their story. And at the same time, try to make it the best film I can with each pass, with each revision. So that's just really the biggest challenge for me was about how do I tell the story with integrity and make sure I don't miss the mark. And without the women's participation in the very deep, in profound way, it would not have been possible. Oh, uh, there's so much I learned on this film. I mean, the, the one thing I love above all else, above filmmaking, is travel. Is that experience of sort of losing yourself into a new culture, learning and testing yourself in a new place and learning about a new, a new culture and the little details that you'll see when you go simply walk down the street and sit down in a cafe or sit down on a uh, to, to eat in a roadside stand, or stand up at a roadside stand in a different culture, and you start, start to see these different ways of doing things, these different 
nuances and these different uh, flavors. And I mean that in every way. So this was truly like an odyssey for me because I had never been invited to an Ethiopian person's home. I'd never shared a meal with another person who's Ethiopian, which is very different from a Western meal. You know, you eat with injera. You share a communal meal. You eat with your hands. Uh, it's very different and, and, so, and, a, and a much more intimate way of, of sharing a meal together. Um, and it's wonderful. Um, for me, probably, this is a very heavy subject matter, but I also think it's a very uplifting, empowering, and inspiring story. And that's the real reason behind making this film. But one of the lighter moments was uh, I went to Ethiopia to film. And it was very complicated because we're shooting a human rights documentary. And at the time, uh, I couldn't get a visa. Uh, it's a journalism visa you have to get. And I couldn't get a visa uh, to get entry into the country to film. So I was planning on going with my cinematographer, Dominique Martinez, amazing cinematographer. And it took so long that she eventually got booked on another job. And uh, considering I was constantly running out of money, I couldn't really ask her to, to, to wait on this low-budget documentary. So eventually I had to go alone. And thank God, I, um, this Ethiopian producer named Hermes Waldeamlak joined the project. And he guided me through everything. The, the bureaucracy, but also he himself was a survivor of the Red Terror of this era in the 1970s when the women were arrested, interrogated, and tortured. He himself had also been arrested, interrogated, and tortured, and his family had been torn apart by the political dyna dynamic of, of that era, meaning he had part of his family was on one side, part of his family was on the other. So he had true intimate knowledge of every part of what we were going to cover in the documentary, and he was there watching and advising me and correcting me along the way. Um, but one of the funny things that happened was uh, toward the end of filming, I was returning uh, equipment to our rental house. So we hired 100% uh, Ethiopian crew and we did casting there and all of our actors were hired from Addis Ababa University because uh, we needed young actors. So they were all, all drama students, which was an extraordinary and very joyful experience to be honest, because their joy of just making the film uh, kind of rekindled my joy because I was so stressed out because it was such a challenge to film in this country uh, without any team that I, I'm familiar with, with a bureaucracy that is sort of world-class. I mean, Ethiopian bureaucracy, there's no way a Western mentality can crack that nut. No way. Uh, it's really impressive. Uh, so all these, they had all these challenges plus a finite amount of time. It's a visa. You have to leave after 30 days. If I don't get the footage I need, I'm, I'm, I don't have it. And maybe we don't have the film. So I'm returning the equipment and this guy who owns the, uh, the rental house is having breakfast and he's drinking his chai. That's the tea that they drink there. And, and he invites me to sit down and he doesn't speak much English. I speak hardly any Amharic. I can say, hello, how are you? And then it just ends. I just nod after that. Um, and it turns out it's doulet that he's eating. And doulet is raw minced uh, lamb meat. And I said, wow, I've never had this at 10 o'clock in the morning before. In fact, I've never even had, I've never even had raw lamb meat. And I said, this is, this, I love this. This is what, this is what travel's about. So I sit down with this guy who's sort of the kingpin of like camera equipment in, in Addis Ababa, have this meal with him. And then I meet up with my crew that night in the cast to film the last pieces with, uh, we kind of, Again, it's a low-budget film, so once we're done with a certain 
pieces of equipment, I return it and then continue filming with only what we need because it saves, you know, whatever, maybe saves a hundred bucks and that matters. So I tell my, my actors, I said, I had something delicious this morning. I had doulet. And they're like, oh my God, you, the Ferengi, Ferengi is like foreigner, like, a, you know, uh, American, like eating doulet. That's amazing. I can't believe it. I go, they go, what do you think? I said, it's delicious. It's great. And then that night when we have dinner, everyone's very excited. Like we found doulet for you because you loved it so much. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. There's no way I can survive eating raw lamb meat. I mean, it can, doulet can be other meats too, but raw meat. There's no way I can survive that twice in one day. I mean, I've got a pretty sturdy constitution, but there's no way. So I ate it, finished the shoot, and literally an hour after we finished filming, I was like, oh, I'm sick. I'm going to get sick. And uh, and that was uh, <laughs> one of those experiences where I had no, I didn't know what to do, and I just ate doulet. I had a double doulet day, and, and it got me. <laughs> one of the things that's fascinating about making a film is that it can take a couple of years. In this case, it took four years. And so the meaning of the film changes as your culture changes or as the world changes. And I've never seen that so markedly on any project I've, I've worked on before as I did with this. So I began this in 2017, Trump's America. And at the time in the back of my head or, or deep inside my, my sort of, the meaning behind the story was a reminder that refugees and immigrants are exactly what makes America great. And, and sort of in the back of my head was sort of, I was hoping there'd be a, 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 that could serve as a subtle reminder or perhaps a powerful reminder that this is what America is all about. It's not about vilifying and degrading immigrants and refugees. It's about remembering and acknowledging, appreciating that barring the very first Native Americans, of course, without refugees, without immigrants fleeing to America to try to make a better world for themselves, for their families, there would be no America. This is the essence of this nation. So that was in my line in 2017. Again, this, this film ended up taking four years. And America and the world has gone through so much in those four years. Uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, Me Too movement. Uh, and all of a sudden, as we were making this film and finishing this film, I saw that as we started presenting it in small groups to see how people reacted to it, see if they understood it, the meaning of the story changed because the context in which it was being released had completely changed. Trump was no longer in, a president, in, in the, in the, Trump was no longer the president. He was no longer even on Twitter. And now this story about a government official empowered to abuse, to torture, to use force in a way that violated the rights and sometimes even took the lives of, of, of individuals resonated in a different way. And then the fact that this story began, at least the American portion of the story began in Atlanta with a woman who was a survivor of abuse for the first time ever coming to these strangers and saying, this is what happened to me. She'd never even told her own family what happened to her. So she told these lawyers for the first time and it's covered in the film. And the fact that she told them her truth 
came forward and said, this is the abuse that I survived. This is the man who did that to me. And she was believed. That seems like a very important point in 2017, but now it's sort of this incredible gut punch. It's like a shockwave goes through the room now. That's something that Elizabeth says in the documentary. She knew then, she knew, and she knew in 2017, and she knows now how important that fact is. But it resonates in such a more powerful way because of the rise of the Me Too movement. So for this film, it's fascinating that it's the same story but yet its meaning has definitely evolved and changed as it reflects back on the changes in our culture. I mean, every film, I think, is a million heartbreaks and a handful of miracles. And you need to understand when you're trying to make a film, especially an independent film, that you're gonna have a lot of setbacks and things are gonna go wrong in ways you could never imagine. And you just have to keep soldiering on. And it that takes a toll. It's uh, psychologically, emotionally exhausting, physically exhausting. It can be financially uh, destructive to your well-being as well if you have a project run out of money and there's no way to keep it afloat. But at the same time, you have to have and work toward these little miracles that happen, these wonderful things that, that arise that sometimes you had nothing to do with, or sometimes it's just your hard work and tenacity. And for me, one of the most extraordinary things that happened on this project, uh, aside from the beautiful connections that, that were developed and fostered with the, with our uh, cast and crew in Addis Ababa with the Little Ethiopia Cultural Center and the Habesha Film Association. These are the Ethiopian diaspora community organizations in Los Angeles coming together and bringing together an Ethiopian cast for filming recreations in the States. All of that was very beautiful, very meaningful, and very rich. And there are relationships that I have now have in my life that I'm very grateful for. But I'd say the biggest thing is that to me, these three women are true heroes. And I mean that with no reservation, they're true American heroes. And something that happened on this project that I really didn't anticipate, but I'm very grateful for is that my heroes became my friends. Just yesterday, I was on the phone with Elizabeth. Uh, it's not transactional. It wasn't specifically like, oh, we need to film this. We need to talk about this. It was just to check in on how, how are you doing? How's this going? Um, like two friends do. So for me, that's really amazing. And I'm, and very, I'm very grateful for that. I used to think I was a cynic and that the cynic is the greatest romantic, meaning that you're comparing how things can be with how things really are. But I guess I'm an optimist because I, I see the world and specifically my country, which is the, all I really know, I think firsthand as being on an unstoppable arc toward a better world. And that there's so many setbacks right now, but these to me are these sort of pathetic last gasps of people that have already lost power and already lost relevance. 
they're trying to claw back land and power that they've already lost. Uh, they may not, they may have more power now than they did two years ago, but I think it's just the done deal that if we zoom out over the next 20 years, the next 50 years, that we're moving toward a fairer, more equitable, more just country and more just and more transparent world, which inevitably will result in a more just world. And I take inspiration from this story, from the fact that this is a story about three women coming to a country where they have no power. They're immigrants and refugees from Ethiopia, a country that most people don't even know where it is on a map in America. They have no connections, no power, but they had an de incredible determination to fight for justice. And the fact that three women with no power, no resources, no connections can be successful in that fight, to me is a great sign of hope, beacon of hope. And my secret hope for this film my secret wish for this film is that a college student or a law student or a grad student will see this story and reflect on the potential of their life and realize, because this is a true life experience, this is a concrete example of very few people with no power changing the world for the better, that one student, one future leader, one individual who may become a leader in tomorrow's world will become inspired by these three women. And if that happens, that's more than I've ever done with anything else I've done. If that happens, that, that will achieve more than any project I've ever been involved with. And that gives me hope. I would give, if I have to rate my life from zero to 10, which on principle, I reject the question, but, uh, it'd be a 4.65. So I would say that on a personal level, I have wonderful friends. I have a wonderful fiance. I have uh, wonderful parents that are getting older, but they're still very healthy. So I have, I have wonderful nephews who are my other heroes. So I have on a personal level, I, I Maybe it's an 11 in terms of the meaningful relationships in my life that matter. But if I look at what I'm trying to achieve creatively, I mean, I wish I had been able to make two films in the span of four years, not just one. So that, that dwindles down to like a 1.5 to a 2. Uh, I hope audiences will respond to this film, and I hope that we can reach an audience around the world, because I think this story is that important and deserves that audience. But really, I just, I'm a storyteller. I want to, if I had the resources, I would be starting another film tomorrow or yesterday. But instead, but the reality is uh, it's more uh, Sisyphusian and uh, the boulder has to be pushed from the bottom again. And that takes time. So for me, I, I, that number skews much lower because there's so many more stories I want to tell and there's so much more creative output that I would like to be able to achieve. So I have to say, right, we watched the documentary before talking to Christopher and the documentary was difficult to watch in some places. Like, I, I almost feel like I'm so grateful that 
I haven't gone through something like that. You know, like, and so many of us, we have our own challenges and difficulties in life, but it's, yeah, it was, the stories were hard, I think. And especially since, you know, we watched it and then talked to Christopher and then he explained the challenges he went through to produce this made me appreciate it even more, I think. I agree. It was a difficult watch, even though I did know about the political Mm. situation, but I didn't really have any knowledge of the torture and certainly not firsthand the way that these women were sharing it, right? Um, I, but I felt glad by the time I'd finished watching it. I felt really, really glad that one, these women are here, right? Just to tell the story from a, from that point of view and that they are here, they have survived. Um, what happened to them was absolutely horrific. Um, but also that, that, as we talked about the right at the start of this episode about magnifying that story, right? I've gone on and had conversations with other people about this and they weren't aware of it either. Um, mm. And so I take from that, right? It's the power of magnification of these stories, of passing them forward um, and shining a light on them. So yeah, that that was kind of something that I took from it. And I think, you know, before before listening to Christopher's story, you know, we were talking about this missing white woman syndrome. And, you know, in just within this year, there were two cases of missing women in the UK. You know, and even that, you can see the big difference in media coverage. Right? Yeah, how people... And I mean, to be fair, right, it could also be that the first one, you know, which is the Sarah Everett case, that came into light and the perpetrator was a police officer. Like there there are factors, I think, which incensed people more than the second case. Um, And I don't know if it's because one happened first, right, that it got more media attention. But yeah, I don't know. I, to me, I didn't even find out about the second case until I saw it on Twitter, I think. And that was before it was on headlines. And I think there was, it. I believe, on Twitter or on social media, it was trending because of the hashtag, people using her name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, but I think you see that with children that go missing i mean one of the most famous cases here in the uk um yes um Mm. and there's there's a whole raft of things in that right it's class it's race um god that was a whole that was a whole mess you know the whole madeline mccann situation yes but again there's a very famous case in the UK from the early 2000s about two schoolgirls mm. that were, uh, well, murdered by um, a man that worked at their school by him and his partner. Mm. Um, I think there's a very iconic image that they're two girls in Man United t- mm-hmm. uh, T-shirts. But I guess what I'm trying to say is where children 
of other races, colors, nationalities go missing, and they do mm. with alarming frequency, not just in the, I don't particularly think, say, the UK, but the world over. It just doesn't feel like these things capture our attention in quite the same way. Mm. I agree. I think, again, right, back to my earlier point about mainstream media being very obviously funded by different parties. Um, And, I mean, I'll say it here, I'm not happy about it (laughs) because, you know, it's impossible for us to be, for all of us to be sleuths, you know, to go and investigate everything. It's just not possible. You can, like, some people choose to pour their whole lives into, you know, injustices and trying to help, but for the day-to-day person who just wants to stay abreast of what's happening, I don't think, I think this is setting up to fail because, you know, if you just remember back to before Brexit happened, you know, during the campaign running up to the referendum and all of those things, you can see how divided. And the thing is, I'm okay for people to have different opinions, of course, but when you are supposed to be a source of, fact that shouldn't be subjective now of course there's a whole other conversation (laughs) around is anything not subjective oh you know what my favorite saying is right that there are three versions of the truth yeah yours mine and the reality and that elusive third one no one ever has their complete truth it's there is always perspective even within but i think mm. There can be neutrality. Yeah. There can be neutrality. And I think that's what I'm after because obviously nothing is subjective. History books are not objective, right? They are told by the winners, right? Well, yes, because they get to write. And they are not dead, essentially. (laughs) But but I think the neutrality is is a rare currency now. Um which is why sometimes, you know, I would look at things like Twitter because you do see both sides of the arguments. And, I mean, I don't only base my world on Twitter, but I think sometimes it's almost like hearing from the people might give you more truth than relying on mainstream media. Is my opinion, right? Because... Unless you are actually there to witness it, you don't you don't know what happened. Well, right. even in being there to witness an event, um, your perception pe- is still exactly yeah. Um, on a lighter note, though, I think we were both like kind of giggling when Christopher talked about his food experiences in <laughs> Ethiopia. Yes, oh, the raw lamb mince dish, dullet, I believe it was called. Mm. I mean, you know me, right? Because I'm a meat eater and I eat pretty much everything. So I think I would have been okay. With the exception of insects. It's a, I don't it's a mind insects. No. Do you not? Like when you go to Thailand or anything, you don't eat any of the like, like the ants or the I mean, crickets. anything deep fried is tasty, right? Yeah. But I'm talking about like cooking it in other ways. Okay. Are you talking like bush took a trial? Like I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Okay, that's a hard no. Because it's raw. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a definite hard no. But 
let's say instead of like you know like a spag ball instead of mm. meat they use like mealworm i'd be like no can't if it looks like it i'm not gonna eat it this that's interesting right so for everyone who doesn't know i'm a pescatarian and i always find it somewhat amusing where meat eaters won't eat meat that looks oh, like, like fish the... with the eyes on or yeah or you know like something that you can quite obviously tell what it originated as so <laughs> when I'm, it was still moving i'm not like that with meat meat but i think it's because i generally don't like insects <laughs> that i just find them horrible anyway growing up as a chinese person seeing the food in its whole form is a sign of freshness because you can't exactly that, exactly yeah which is why i do that's why i find it quite amusing that mm. you know if the chicken breast has been like packaged up and like is sitting on the shelf at waitrose it's fine but if you have to go see like the whole thing and get it like feathered and deboned yeah. and you know all that see i think that all that comes down to you know what you're used to right because i'm sure if i grew up somewhere where insects were a normal thing to eat i wouldn't be like this around them (laughs) (laughs) but like with yeah because i grew up you know where we go to markets and chickens are alive before you buy them and fish are alive before you buy them so i'm quite okay with that oh my gosh so your crabs we have to tell this story oh my god (laughs) So for anyone who doesn't know us, we love to cook. But Janice was going to cook, I think it was a crab dish for Chinese, for the fest, for a festival, right? Uh, it's not really a festival. So for Chinese people, October-ish is kind of, you know, once you've had mid-autumn festival, um, then you come into crab season. So it's just a thing. Like we eat crabs in October. I love it. Everyone else is having pumpkin spice lattes and you're having crabs. That's my kind yeah, of... Both orange. Okay. So, exactly. Yeah. So, I never actually had them here. Right? Usually I would time it so that I'm in Hong Kong for the crab season. Because then, you know, I can eat it there. And then I was in this um, chat group of my local Chinese um, supermarket and they were like, hey guys, we're sourcing some crabs. Do you want some? And then I'm like, hell yeah, I'll have some. Thinking that it would be exactly the same experience, right? To my surprise, <laughs> they were not tied up. So they were quite, they were a lot smaller than what I'm used to. And for people who want to look it up, that we call them hairy crabs, or you can search for the term mitten crabs, because you know they're like claws. They've got like fur on them, so they look like they're wearing mitten. <laughs> Yeah, like cuffs, essentially. So I went and picked up the crabs. They came in a little plastic carrier bag, two bags. And they were literally just like alive and happy. Like they were walking around. Is this and like when you buy a goldfish and it's still, they give it you in a bag? Yeah, it's like a, it's like alive. It's, yeah. You know. Okay. And I kept them in my fridge in the vegetable <laughs> drawer because the shop, assistant was like they are gonna try to escape so you need to find somewhere secure to put them so i put them in the vegetable drawer and what's supposed to happen is that i mean so again i don't want any like hate coming from this because i would like to think i was very humane 
I gave them a nice damp towel to lay on and I sprayed them with water. So they were all breathing, like they were blinking and everything. Um, but they were in their plastic carrier bag, right, originally when I put them in the fridge. And why the reason we do that is that the low temperature of the fridge is supposed to kind of knock them out. You know, imagine Relax you being them. in a meat freezer, like you'd <laughs> that's be... not please. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be asleep, right? Because it's cold, yeah. like that's what happens. But I was thinking that perhaps because they these are European crabs, they are used to colder temperatures. So guess what? They were not asleep and they all escaped from their bag. Which was very uh, stressful because you were messaging me saying the crabs have got out the bag and I had this image that the crabs were then scuttling around your kitchen. <laughs> no, so they, they were safely in their little, you know, clear drawer in my fridge. But they were just like, you know, chatting. I don't know if they're chatting, but they were making sounds. And they were like walking around, exploring their new home for a bit. And so eventually what I had to do was I went on YouTube and I found some videos and learned how to tie them up, like how you would buy them actually in other parts of Asia. And then I had them and then I steamed them and had them. That was good. And Amazing. this is the thing, right? So I went to the new seafood bar restaurant in Soho and they had crabs too, but they had, I think, Dungeness crabs because we only got the legs. Right, and they're huge. And it's all cooked for you. And I would actually want to know of the people eating there, how many of them would be able to deal with a live crab and know what to do with it. Because I because I really like cooking, as you know, I learned how to like descale a fish, gut a fish, I know how to deal with a you know, lobster, crab. I can deal with these things when they're alive. But I can't imagine many people sitting there at the restaurant would want to do it. They might find it cruel. But this comes back to my point of our detachment from the food chain. Mm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. So a few weeks ago, we talked about culture shock. That is a culture shock. Like, okay, that's a misnomer for this because I wasn't shocked. But that's a big cultural difference that I observed living in the UK, which is the detachment from your food source. Like, granted, now, I think a lot of people are more in touch with the, you know, nose to tail eating. People are trying to eat more like organ meat and everything, right, for the nutritional benefits. And also, I guess, to be kinder to the environment. So no wastage and all of that. But Borough Market, which is one of my favorite places in London, it's a novelty. It's like a tourist location for people. And I'm like, but why? Like, this is how all markets are. I mean, this is a little bit cleaner, I guess, but that's what I kind of miss, like the actual wet markets. And for people who've been to different parts of Asia, even places like Thailand, Vietnam, you would know what I mean. Like you go to this market, it's messy, it's noisy, it's, you know, it's everything, but you get to buy the freshest things. Exactly, um, because you know that it's come in that day, right? Somebody, even if to the veg, right, you know it's been picked mm. and you can take it home. And quite often people will do that daily shop where whatever you find, you make. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas here I'm like meal planning for the week because I'm putting in a food order. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a different kind of almost wealth that I want to get to, you know, not so much just financial wealth, but to have the, to enjoy the luxury of going to a market in the morning to decide what you want to eat later. I think, I think that would be amazing if we can achieve that. But that's the thing here. I think that is less attainable because even if you had the time to do Mm. that, the markets to go and do it are so limited here. Versus, um, I I think that's, it has to be caveated by the fact that we live in, you know, we live in very central London. So that plays its part. Whereas if I think we lived more rurally, it'd be a different situation. You'd have more like local markets. Farm to table, that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, it's interesting how we perceive that as wealth, right? Um, Mm. Whereas in, across Asia, actually, it's just commonplace. And really, when you're at the market, correct me if I'm wrong, but you see all kinds of people there from all walks of life. It's not necessarily the preserve Mm -hmm. of the very, very wealthy. I think supermarkets I mean this is my opinion but you go to the supermarket to buy other groceries right like kitchen paper or you know blue roll things like that not fresh produce no and if you do buy meat I mean in most supermarkets in Hong Kong actually they do have a fresh seafood Mm. section where they have fish tanks and things are swimming when you buy them because that's how much we value it, how much the market values fresh fish, right, or seafood. But when you go to buy things like, you know, mint or other kind of fresh meat, there's a huge difference between things that are labeled actually fresh and fresh frozen, right? And we really value that, especially chicken. So a bit of a like detour, a sidebar from this topic, but because of avian flu, there have been various points in time where you could not buy fresh chicken in Hong Kong because it's unhygienic, right? Like you're killing chickens in the market and because of avian flu, um, that was not allowed, right? So because of these influences, to be able to buy an actually fresh chicken is so much more expensive than buying chickens that are, they go to this like central abattoir where everything is clean and sterilized. So you that's grade two, I would say. So grade one would be fresh, actual, alive chicken. Grade two would be this. And then you would have the imported like frozen chicken or pre-frozen chicken. So there's a hierarchy among chickens. Interesting. So I've known about that with fish. So... Mm. People will sneer at this slightly, but of course the the absolute freshest is, you know, your fishmonger, fresh fish that day, Mm -hmm. fish market, Billingsgate, that kind of thing. You know, it's come off the boat. But the fish that we can buy that is fresh, even at a supermarket on a counter, is quite often flash frozen at source. Yeah. And then defrosted again. Mm -hmm. Which is why there is a movement um amongst other companies that you and I have both used where the fish is frozen at source and it's kept frozen yeah and it's delivered to you that way and the idea being that actually 
that is at its freshest that you are going to get it mm-hmm. if you don't live and we don't unfortunately live somewhere that has you know a river running outside um well so, we do but you wouldn't want to eat the fish in it absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> so I'm aware of it from a fish point of view but I didn't realize it was the same with chicken but yeah it's interesting you said that yeah hierarchy of chickens and on that note we shall see you next week for another episode subscribe rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on instagram at culturally speaking podcast you can also check out our website culturallyspeaking.co.uk for a transcript of this episode share your stories or your show ideas with us by sending us an email at theculturallyspeaking@gmail.com. at gmail.com